This is John Grisham. Welcome to this week's edition of Book Tour uh, from the beautiful town of Asheville, North Carolina. I'm joined today by the novelist Ron Rash, who is from these parts. And we're in for a special treat because Ron is going to read a beautiful section from his novel, Serena. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this special series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today, I'm in the beautiful mountain town of Asheville, North Carolina, at a great old store called Malaprops. My guest today is Ron Rash, a local guy, and our host is Cindy Norris, and here she is. New York Times bestselling author John Grisham has been a part of my reading life for almost 30 years. I know you can't imagine that that's possible, you know, that I read some of his books when I was three, but anyway. Um, A lover of legal thrillers with a background in law myself, I picked up A Time to Kill in 1988 when it came out. And after that, I was always the first person in line at the bookstore wherever I was living to get my copy of the latest John Grisham novel. My 91-year-old father, who is still an avid reader, and I have traded these books back and forth over the years. The only thing that makes this evening bittersweet for me is that he is too frail to travel now and couldn't be here. But rest assured, he's getting a signed copy of Camino Island for Father's Day. (laughs) If I had to define two themes central to all of John's books, they would be justice and hope. Roll through his storylines in your mind. Okay, go. (laughs) All right, time's up. Um, And an event from John's life that illustrates his passion for justice and hope is as follows. In 1996, John took time off from writing for several months to return after a five-year hiatus to the courtroom. He was honoring a commitment made before he had retired from law to become a full-time writer, to represent the family of a railroad brakeman, killed when he was pinned between two cars. Preparing his case with the same passion and dedication as his book's protagonists, he successfully argued his client's case, earning them a jury award and the biggest verdict of his career. For those of you who haven't yet read Camino Island, there will be no spoilers here. I will let John and Ron reveal what they may. (laughs) Thank you. I am delighted to be here in lovely uh, Asheville in this gorgeous bookstore with a big crowd on a beautiful day. And thank all you folks for coming. Uh, thanks for hosting me today uh, and us, and uh, again, thanks for uh, the wonderful turnout. Uh, I'm touring. This is a book tour, um, my first one in 25 years. Uh, I stopped a few years ago because I just got tired of it. I, I did one national book tour, and I said, I'm, I'm, I can't do that anymore. And, and I got lucky uh, at about the same time, didn't have to tour, you know, and if you don't have to do something you don't really enjoy – and so for 25 years, I've just kind of um, watched as everybody else was forced to tour, and, and, I, and I could stay home. And so, uh, but I, I, I always felt guilty at times for not getting out more. 
and go into places like this, great independent bookstores all over this country, and the number is increasing. Uh, we see more and more new stores every year, and some are most are prospering. Uh, so the book is not going to die. The book's going to be alive for a long time, and stores like this will continue to to grow and prosper. Um, at each stop, and I'm going to 13 stores, five of which are in North Carolina. Uh, my wife is from. My wife was born in Raleigh, and. Um, she moved to Mississippi when she was a kid, and they moved next door to the Grishams. And um, <laughs> she was uh, she's six years younger. So when we were growing up, she was a kid, you know, I'd hanging around. I didn't really pay attention to her. Uh, I, when I came home from college, she had grown up. Uh, <laughs> and the romance hit fast and hard, and I had to wait a whole year uh, before I could ask her out because, you know, then she was 17. And her father said, there's no way you're dating a Grisham. Uh, <laughs> and she said, watch me. And I went to pick her up for our first date to go see Greece, John Travolta in Greece in August, August of 1978. And um, been together ever since. So anyway, she's from Raleigh. My daughter w uh, went to Chapel Hill, finished in 2008. She's a Tar Heel. My, she married a Tar Heel. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> 15 months ago, gave birth to a Tar Heel. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, a lot of strong sides. We have a place in Chapel Hill. My daughter lives in Raleigh, so we're up there all the time now uh, watching her. At each stop, I'm uh, inviting local writers to come have a discussion. That's why Ron's here. We met, we've been friends for years. We, we met about 10 minutes ago. And uh, back, in, <laughs> back in the back. Uh, and talk about books and writing and publishing and book selling and, you know, whatever you want to talk about. And we're going to try that. This is a, this is a podcast. Okay? It's all been recorded. Uh, starting next Tuesday, uh, they're going to start releasing the podcast. What are you, po posting? What are you, what are you, what are you with a podcast? Dropping. dropping. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> why, why is it called dropping? We don't know. No one, no one knows. <laughs> I got a new word. We're going to drop a podcast next week. And we're, they're, going to, they're going to drop one a week for 13 consecutive weeks throughout the, the rest of the summer. And so if, you know, if you want to, if you want to listen to this, you're, you find it somewhere in podcast land. I don't know where. I've never done. I've never done this before. There's no script. There's no schedule. There's no nothing. Subscribe on iTunes. That's right. I'm supposed to know that. I'm book tour with John Grisham. I'm supposed to know that. Uh, so anyway, that's what we're doing. What we're trying to do. And Ron and I are going to talk for a while. We're actually going to do something I haven't done yet on the tour and read. Uh, he's going to read from his book. I'm going to read from mine, A Camino Island. And uh, then we're going to talk about storytelling and writing and whatever we want to talk about. And uh, if we have time at the end, and we have time because there's no schedule, uh, we'll take questions from the floor. So if you guys want to ask some questions, that's a, the fun part for us is interacting and, and trying to find out what's on your mind. And so uh, with that in mind, Ron, we'll start our discussion. All right, we're on a book tour. The first question is, do you tour? Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do. Uh, and... In a way, it's very rewarding, uh, particularly because, and I, I think you would agree, uh, uh, the stores that have that, that have been crucial to me are Independence. Uh, this store certainly. This is I consider Malaprops my home store. Home store, I like that. And uh, <laughs> well, but I mean, there's a bond. There's a bond established, and uh, so uh, and and for me, the independent bookstores are 
are the stores that uh, have supported me. And, and I, I think there's something about going into a store. I mean, when I go to, to a bookstore, knowing people who love books and know books, and uh, that that's just a wonderful experience. But it, it's, it's, it is tough because I think most writers are introverts. Yeah. And it takes a lot of energy out of it. Do you do the national thing? I mean, do you, do you go to the West Coast? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was in France. Uh, three weeks ago doing some book tours there. Your publisher sent you to France? Well, no, uh, my, my, my French publisher. Oh, your French publisher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I have not been invited to do that with my French <laughs> <family. laughs> I'll make a note of that. Yeah, um, but... Uh, yeah, but I, you know, we were talking earlier. It's funny when you get on book tour, you hit you hit a wall after about ten or twelve days. And uh, I was in Los Angeles. I was just completely wiped out, completely wiped out. And I was walking down the street, and I just had this overwhelming desire just to curl up on the street on the sidewalk. I mean, just lie down. You would have been alone in L.A. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And you uh, fit right in. <laughs> and and there was a there was a drugstore there. And and they and the sign said B twelve shots, and, <laughs> and I went in there and I just said hit me, you know, just hit me. I put my arm in, and they did. I don't know if it helped or not, you know, but I did get through. But it's a, it's a it's it's both wonderful, but it's also boy, it takes a lot out of. It. You know, uh, that's a that's a cute story, Ron, because most lawyers, uh, I mean, most writers would uh, go to a bar, and you <laughs> and you go to a far a drugstore, okay. Uh, I want to talk something about your about your your fiction. You write some um, pretty dark stories about some pretty dark places, and I know that's where you come from. And um, I mean, I, yeah, I spent some time in Appalachia researching a book called Gray Mountain a few years ago, and uh, really for the for the first time in my life, and really was touched by the by the region, by the people, by their spirit, by their stories, by their uh, by their music by their writing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating place for me. Um, coming from there, what, what made you want to write about it? Well, my family's been in this region for over 200 years. Actually, uh, my grandparents are, are buried in uh, uh, Leicester, you know, what, 10 miles from here, out in the rural area of this county. And my mother's family's from the Boone area. So, you know, I have these deep roots, and, and I grew up hearing the stories uh, that deep connection. I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea of how a land, the landscape that one is born into affects us psychologically. You know, to grow up in mountains, what does that do to always be reminded how small you are, but also at the same time being enclosed and protected. So those things fascinate me. But early on, uh, and, and, and thank you, Mississippi, uh, Faulkner and Eudora Welty, who has a wonderful quote, she says, one place comprehended makes us understand all other places better. And so I felt like I've got enough here. I don't have to write about Paris or New York City. And, uh, and I felt like uh, the stories here uh, were stories that I could connect to and, and I could find enough here to write about and not exhaust it, and, and I haven't. How old were you when you started writing? Oh, uh, I was about 18 or 19. Really young, did you uh, did you write? Did you study it in college? Uh, no. Uh, the, the first creative writing class I was in, I taught. <laughs> wow. <Whoa, whoa. laughs> what did you teach? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not much, probably. Uh, you know, that's kind of like you know Jerry Clower. Uh, you know Jerry Clower once said that you know the first. 
football game he ever saw he was in, you know. <laughs> Same kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Well, that, you know, that, that opens a can of worms, okay? A big, a big can of worms. I mean, I never took a creative writing class and never thought about it. In college, I was uh, I majored in accounting. I went to law school to become a tax lawyer. Never th- I always read a lot, but never dreamed of being a writer. And it came uh, later in life. I was, I was 30 years old when I sat down one night and wrote the first chapter, first page of what eventually became uh, A Time to Kill. Uh, can, you, can you teach writing? <laughs> Thank you. Can you teach writing? Well, I, I, I don't use the term creative writing. I, I use, the term I use in my class is uh, fiction writing. Uh, I don't know that you can teach creativity, uh, or I certainly can't. But, uh, but what I can do, I, I, and I tell my students this to first class, the most valuable thing I can give you is I can show you people to read. And I, I give my students, I mean, my students read more than they write in my creative or fiction writing class. And uh, uh, because that's how we learn. That's how we learn. You know, that's how we learn to do anything. If, if you want to be a good guitarist, you study Doc Watson uh, or Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix. Uh, uh, if you want to be a good baseball player, you, you study the best. And so I think, uh, like you, I mean, when I got an MA in English, it was, but it was a straight MA, and, and I was studying literature. And I thought, for me, I needed that more. That was what I needed. I needed to immerse myself uh, in reading. And uh, What was the first thing you wrote? Or first thing you got published? Oh, I see. Uh, uh, a poem. I had a poem in uh, uh, Southern, uh, not Southern, uh, Southern Humanities Review, I think, yeah. And you, you, your first three books were three volumes of poetry, right? Uh, I had one book, short stories, and then three volumes of poetry, yeah. Why'd you mess with poetry? Uh, <laughs> for the money. For the money, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know better than that. Uh, but yeah, yeah, my, yeah, my, my, my daughter uh, actually just finishing up uh, an MFA at, or has finished up an MFA at, in Rutgers in poetry, and, and she was asking advice. And I said, "You better marry somebody who make money." <laughs> so, what was the uh, what was the first novel? Uh, One foot in Eden. And how'd you get it published? Was it? Uh... Uh, that was an interesting story, and I think it's a good story for people who um, you need to know this kind of thing. And well, you know it because um, I felt like it was a pretty good book. I mean, I'd actually written two I'd thrown away because they weren't good, but I felt like it was a pretty good book. And um, it got kept. You know, I actually was able to get some an agent uh, for a little while, who and it kept getting rejected in New York, and it, then it won a very small contest in uh, Charlotte novella contest. And it got several good reviews. And one of the great, this says so much about publishing, uh, I think, in a way. The same companies, you know, uh, publishers who turned it down bid on it as a paperback because, you know, it had gotten these good reviews. And uh, that always, you know, kind of struck me. But, yeah, that was, that's where it started. So, so it, was, it was turned down by a lot of people. Yeah, and, I mean, you did that with, uh, what, Time to Kill, right? Yeah, oh, time, time to Kill was turned down by... Um, uh, oh, 15 or 16 publishers and agents. Back then, you could submit yeah. to, we could submit to publishers, yeah. and you might get a response, you may not. Now, it's, that's almost unheard of. You, you have to go through an agent, and uh, I, I don't know why. The, I guess there's so many submissions. But actually, the first uh, rejection letter I ever got was from a, um, 
Herman Golub, a senior editor at Doubleday, he wrote me a personal note back. And because I'd read all these books on how to get published, uh, I, wrote a, I read a book one time, uh, How to Become a Best-Selling Author, <laughs> written by a guy who hadn't sold anything, you know? I mean, <laughs> except that one book, and I bought it, so the joke's on me, you know? But, you know, I had all this stuff. I'd, I'd been re reading Writer's Digest magazine, you know, all, all the tips on how to get published, and I knew that for a guy like Herman Golub to uh, send me a personal letter, that it had, it had kind of made its way up the chain a little bit, and so it was a very nice rejection letter. I, st I still have it. I still have all of them. And um, <laughs> yeah, I got them filed away. And, um, but, I, I mean, I took it home and said, look, Renee, I got, I got a great rejection letter today. <laughs> And the rejection stuff kind of made the mail fun for a few months, you know. You, you, we were, I was submitting nonstop, and, you know, I always had 10 manuscripts or copies of A Time to Kill floating around New York, and, and somebody would send it back, and my secretary would literally take the package. It was like the first three chapters and a summary and whatever, and if a cover letter, I, I, do, I was doing it all perfectly like you're supposed to. And she would strike off one name on the list and, and mail it back to somebody else. So there was, there was 10 copies floating around, uh, New York at any given moment, and, and finally uh, an agent called, and, and he said, I'd like to represent you, and I said, yeah, I was thrilled. It was uh, April of 1987. He then took the um, uh, manuscript and took it back around to all the publishers. They said no for the second time, and um, he found a small unknown press that b uh, bought it and published it in 1989. And by the, by the time it was published, uh, I had finished the second book, and when A Time to Kill was published in 89, it was, it was a total flop. You couldn't, I mean, it, it didn't sell anywhere except Memphis, you know, where I was living. Uh, a couple of stores there it carried it, you know, but uh, uh, it did not sell, period. Uh, but the firm was a different story. And when I went back, back to uh, Doubleday, I bought the firm a year later. And so when I went back to New York for the first time, I went and found Herman Golub. I, I took the letter. I say, hey, this is, do you have a sense of humor? Here's your rejection letter for A Time to Kill. And I just want to thank you because it meant a lot to me as a very nice rejection letter. And he, he saw the humor. He, he was a, he, 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 <laughs> I wasn't being vindictive. I thought it was kind of funny. And he, he managed to laugh. Uh, get, back to, get back to writing and storytelling. You come from a tradition of um, oral writers, oral or, or storytellers. Who are those people? Oh wow, uh, you know a lot, a lot of rel uh, relatives, and uh, just I think just very fortunate in being around some good storytellers growing up. Uh, and uh, probably the the one that had the biggest impression on me was my grandfather. Uh, and uh, tell this, yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> I um, my mother gave me a, a copy of the Cat in the Hat when I was about four or five years old, and. Uh, so one Sunday, you know, she'd read it to me about 20 times, and um, my, uh, I asked my grandfather to read it to me. And everybody, I don't know, we were just by ourselves. So he opened it up, and uh, as he read it, you know, the, the cat was kind of living a different life. You know, these things, something, something. And, but it was interesting, you know, here, you know, it's, yeah, this is better. You know, this is not the same old story. And, and like the next time I was with him, I had him, and, and the cat was getting into more trouble. I mean, yeah. You know, it was looking like, you know, serious jail time in, a, in about a month. But It wasn't Dr. Seuss. No, no, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, this was, yeah, this was, uh, you, know, the, you know, these people were, you know, were you know, getting into some real trouble. Or, they, you know, the cat was. Uh, but uh, my grandfather couldn't read or write. He was making it up, you know, and he didn't want me to know. 
And, uh, you know, that, that was just, uh, you know, it, it did this thing where it was like it made words magical. It really did. And, and I think just the idea of, of, of uh, being able to tell a story just like that right. so easily. Uh, my background was not, you know, not there, but for the first seven years of my life, I was, um, I was on a cotton farm in rural Arkansas. My father's a cotton farmer, a sharecropper, and uh, it was a hard life. And his father had done the same thing uh, his entire life, uh, you know, plowed the fields with mules and all that. It was a hard, hard life. Um, the, the first, well, I, I wrote about it in a painted house. The first, um, the first seven years of my life... Uh, I was that little boy on the farm, and uh, we would work. I had to pick cotton, chop cotton. It was not any fun for a kid, and we'd spend a hard day in the fields, and then at night, you know, we'd eat 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 uh, supper, and then go to the porch. And uh, my dad and my grandfather would start telling stories, and a lot of the stories I grew up with, and it, they, both of them were really uh, good storytellers, and. And also liars. It was probably a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, and so when I when I I wanted to write a painted house and capture all that before my parents while they were still alive. And uh, so I took all the stories I'd heard growing up and I put them in that novel and fictionalized that. You know, so it's all fiction. But uh, it, that had a tremendous impact on me. We were talking earlier about though how you you know how you know how you know how to tell a story, and it's it's that's hard to teach. It's really hard to explain. It's hard to explain. It's hard yeah. to explain sometimes how you know who to write about, the conflict, the pacing, the plot, you know, who to – it's 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 a sixth sense sometimes, uh, don't yeah. you think? I, absolutely. And, and as I tell my students, uh, that's the one thing that can't be taught. I don't really think it can be taught. Uh, I mean, if it could be, everyone would be doing it, right? And But it's, I think it's also – it's interesting to me, particularly uh, – when we start, and I don't like to do this, you know, when we start talking about, you know, what makes great fiction or good fiction, uh, <laughs> a big part of it is, is telling a story. And I think sometimes that's underrated. Uh, and, uh, you know, being able to tell a story that really just keeps the reader going. And, uh, and, and I think uh, it's, as I say, I think it's something that... Uh, I, I don't think it can be taught. I really don't. Well, I mean, I'll be interested. What, what do you think? I don't think you can teach it. You can teach uh, a lot about it, uh, the writing process. Yeah. You can teach. Um, I tell students or tell aspiring writers, there are certain things you can do. First of all, you can read a lot. I've never met a writer who was not a voracious right. reader. Right. You, can, you can certainly, uh, on the technical side, you can perfect grammar and you can expand vocabulary. Uh, you can... Um, you can learn to edit. You can learn to, you know, you can teach that. You yeah. can teach editing. Uh, but when it gets down to uh, the actual nuts and bolts of putting a story together, and I'm like you, I never get too far away from, I, I don't get too far away from the story. It's all about plot. And it's easy when you, it's easy to uh, come up with a great idea, you know, a, a real compelling opening and maybe a pretty clever ending. But the, the, the hard part is that 300 pages in the middle of <laughs> When you have to sustain the tension, you know, to keep the pages turning. And, and you know, we, we, we write different stuff. I'm not, I'm, not, um, I'm not married to a place like you are. The, the, the place means so much to you. And it's obvious when you read your books, but I bounce around. 
my place is in the law, and that's all over the place. And and so it, it allows me to uh, to to go uh, to my, the book I'm writing now will be the legal thriller in the fall. It's uh, set in Washington D.C., which is a fascinating place. I live close by, and there's a lot of stories to be told from there. But I'm always I've got, finally got away from Memphis, and um, and I'm, I'll never get away from Ford County though in Mississippi. I, I, I plan to keep going back there in the future, hopefully more and more for more stories. Uh, but uh, I am married to that place, but I enjoy the freedom to tell legal thrillers or write legal thrillers. So anyway, all right, I want you to read. You going to read a section for us yeah, from Serena? I'm just going to read two pages. Two pages. Uh, and I thought it might be interesting because it, it, it kind of ties into maybe a little bit of what we're doing today. Uh, I I think there are times, as you know, when uh, maybe not for you, maybe this doesn't happen to you, but but very often a novel dies on me. I'll be because I always start with an image. I don't outline or plot or any. I just go with an image, and that's you know after about a year with every book, it dies. But with this one, that, that happened for about four or five months, and I finally realized if if some of you've read the book, uh, Serena is the central character. But I felt, I realized I needed it was really uh, Rachel, who's a, this young mountain woman who. Uh, uh, was the really the, the the core of the story because she would be changing whereas Serena doesn't. So I wanted when I when I started, I knew I had to give a sense of her at the beginning. And um, she, at the beginning of the novel, her father uh, has been killed by the man who uh, got her pregnant. Uh, the, you know, the child has been uh, uh, ignored by the father. So she's, she's, she's on, she's by herself, you know, her mother's died. And so she's utterly alone in the world, except for this child. And, uh, she's visiting her father's, uh, gravestone and she's trying to, uh, you know, she's thinking about loss. She stood by the tombstone, dirt, the stone mason had displaced, darkening the grave. Her father had been a hard man to live with, awkward in his affection, never saying much. His temper like a kitchen match waiting to be struck, especially if he'd been drinking. Rachel heard an older woman at the funeral claim her father had been a different man before her mother left. Less prone to anger and bitterness, never bad to drink. Rachel couldn't remember that man. Yet he'd raised a child by himself, a girl child, and Rachel figured he'd done it as well as any man could have alone. She'd never gone wanting for food and clothing. There were plenty of things he hadn't taught her, maybe couldn't teach her, but she'd learned about crops and plants and animals, how to mend a fence and chink a cabin. He'd had her do these things herself while he watched, making sure she knew how, Rachel now realized, when he'd not be around to do it for her. What was that if not a kind of love? She touched the tombstone and felt its sturdiness and solidity. It made her think of the cradle her father had built two weeks before he died. He brought it in and set it by her bed, not speaking a single word, acknowledging he'd made it for the child. But she could see the care and the making of it, how he'd built it out of hickory, the hardest and most lasting wood there was. Made not just to last, but to look pretty, for he'd sanded the cradle and then varnished it with linseed oil. Rachel removed her hand from a stone she knew would outlast her lifetime, and that meant it would outlast her grief. I've gotten him buried in godly ground, and I burned the clothes he died in, Rachel told herself. I've signed the death certificate, and now his gravestone's up. 
I've done all I can do. As she told herself this, Rachel felt the grief inside grow so wide and deep it felt like a dark, fathomless pool she'd never emerged from. Because there was nothing left to do now, nothing except endure it. Think of something happy, she told herself, something he did for you, a small thing. For a few moments, nothing came. Then something did, something that had happened about this time of year. After supper, father had gone to the barn while she went to the garden. In the waning light, she'd gathered ripe pole beans whose dark pods nestled up to the rows of sweet corn she'd planted as trellis. Her father called from the barn mouth and she'd set the wash pan between two rows, thinking he needed her to carry the milk pail to the spring house. Pretty, isn't it? He said as she entered the barn. Her father pointed to a large silver-green moth. For a few minutes, the chores were put off as the two of them just stood there. The barn stripes of light grew dimmer, and the moth seemed to brighten, as if the slow open and close of its wings gathered up the evening's last light. Then the creature rose. As the moth fluttered out into the night, her father had lifted his large, strong hand and settled it on Rachel's shoulder a moment not turning to her as he did so. A moth at twilight, the touch of a hand, something, Rachel thought. As she rode back down the trail, she remembered the days after the funeral, how the house's silence was a palpable thing and she couldn't endure a day without visiting Widow Jenkins for something borrowed or returned. Then one morning she'd begun to feel her sorrow easing like something jagged that had cut into her so long it had finally dulled its edges, worn itself down. That same day, Rachel couldn't remember which side her father had parted his hair on. And she'd realized again what she'd learned at five when her mother left, that what made losing someone you loved bearable was not remembering but forgetting. Forgetting small things first, the smell of the soap her mother bathed with, the color of the dress she'd worn to church. Then after a while, the sound of her mother's voice, the color of her hair. It amazed Rachel how much you could forget. And everything you forgot made that person less alive inside you until you could finally endure it. After more time passed, you could let yourself remember, even want to remember. But even then, what you felt those first days could return and remind you the grief was still there like old barbed wire embedded in a tree's heartwood. And now this brown-eyed child. Don't love it, Rachel told herself. Don't love anything that can be taken away. Beautiful. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. By two, the power lunches were losing steam and the crowd thinned. Avery signed the check and the maitre d' led them to the door. The chauffeur stood patiently by the rear of the limo. Mitch crawled into the back and sank into the heavy leather seat. He watched the buildings and the traffic. He looked at the pedestrians scurrying along the hot sidewalks and wondered how many of them had seen the inside of a limo or the inside of the Manhattan Club. How many of them would be rich in ten years? 
he smiled and felt good. Harvard was a million miles away. Harvard with no student loans. Kentucky was in another world. His past was forgotten. He had arrived. If that story from John Grisham's The Firm made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. Now, on the lighter side, uh, <laughs> uh, the book I'm touring with is called Camino Island. It's, um, it's um, a beach book. Um, a few years ago, when my first few novels came out, the critics, uh, back when I used to read what they had to say, <laughs> would uh, take great delight in referring to the firm, Pelican Brief, and Client, and those books, as nothing but beach books. And, uh, and they were not, you know, being complimentary at all. Uh, over time, I realized that uh, life would be much uh, simpler if I didn't read what they said about my book, so I, I stopped reading the reviews. And, um, uh, however, um, for some reason that I won't go into, uh, I decided to uh, write this book, Camino Island, and publish it on June the 6th of this year as the ultimate beach book, okay? <laughs> It is nothing but a beach book, and uh, it's, it's, it's designed to be read in a couple days on the beach. Uh, it's all about books. It's all about booksellers. It's all about uh, writers. It's all about publishing, and the, there, there are two principal characters in the book. One is a guy named Bruce Cable, who's a bookseller on Camino Island, a Florida resort town. He's got a great bookstore. He makes a good living from the bookstore. He... Um, He's, he's, <laughs> it's, it is, it's fiction. It's it fiction. is fiction. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he makes money with rare books, uh, modern first editions, uh, and, and unknown to his friends, but known to the FBI and a few others. He's also one of a handful of, uh, dealers in the country who deal in stolen books and stolen manuscripts. And that's what the story is all about. Bruce is a character. He works at the store seven days a week. He wears seersucker suits. He wears bow ties. And he wears uh, dirty bucks with no socks year-round. Never owns a pair of socks. He is a very um, handsome and sexy guy like all booksellers. And, um, <laughs> and he loves ladies, and they love him. And that's uh, especially the young female authors who come around on tour. Uh, so uh, this is how... Bruce uh, got into the book business. When Bruce Cable was 23 years old and still classified as a junior at Auburn, his father died suddenly. The two had been feuding over Bruce's lack of academic progress, and things had gotten so bad that Mr. Cable had threatened more than once to cut young Bruce out of his will. Some ancient relative had made a fortune in gravel, and following uh, bad legal advice, had set up a scheme of misguided and complicated trust that had strewn money over generations of undeserving kinfolks. The family had for years lived behind the facade of fine wealth while watching it slowly drip away. Threatening to modify wills and trust was a favorite ploy used against the young, and it had never worked. 
Upon hearing the awful news that his father dropped dead of a heart attack, Bruce went home to Atlanta. It really wasn't his home. He'd never spent much time there, but rather the current and last home of his father, a man who moved often and usually with a frightening woman in tow. (laughs) Mr. Cable had married twice and badly and had sworn off the institution but couldn't seem to exist without the presence of some wretched woman to complicate his life. They were attracted to him because of his apparent wealth, but over time each had realized that he was hopelessly scarred by two horrific divorces. Luckily, at least for Bruce, the last girlfriend had just moved out and the place was free from prying eyes and hands until Bruce arrived. The house a baffling, cutting-edge pile of steel and glass in a hip section of downtown, had a large studio on the third level where Mr. Cable liked to paint when he wasn't investing. He had never pursued a career, and since he lived off his inheritance, he had always referred to himself as an investor. Later, he had turned to painting, but his oils were so dreadful that he had been shooed away from every gallery in Atlanta. On one wall of the studio was covered, one wall of the studio was covered with books, hundreds of them. And at first, Bruce hardly noticed the collection. He assumed they were just part of the window dressing, another part of the act, another lame effort by his father to seem deep, complicated, and well-read. But upon closer observation, Bruce realized that two shelves had some older books with familiar titles. He began pulling them off the upper shelf one by one and examining them. His casual curiosity quickly turned to something else. The books were all first editions, some autographed by the authors. Joseph Heller's Catch-22, published in 1961. Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead, 1948. John Updike's Rabbit Run. 1960. Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, 1952. Walker Percy's The Moviegoer, 1961. Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus, 1959. William Styron's The Confessions of Nat Turner, 1967. Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon, 1929. J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, 1951. After the first dozen or so, Bruce began placing the books on a table rather than returning them to the shelves. His initial curiosity was overwhelmed by a heady wave of excitement, then greed. On the lower shelf, he ran across books and authors he had never heard of until he made an even more startling discovery. Hidden behind a three-volume biography of Churchill were four books. William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, 1929. Steinbeck's Cup of Gold, 1929. F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise, 1920. And Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, all were first editions in excellent condition and signed by the authors. Bruce fished around some more, found nothing of interest 
then fell into his father's old recliner and stared at the wall of books. Sitting there in a house he had never really known, looking at wretched oils done by an artist with an obvious lack of talent, wondering where the books came from, and pondering what he would do when Molly, his sister, arrived, and they would be expected to plan a funeral service, Bruce was struck by how little he knew about his father. And why should he know more? His father had never spent time with him. Mr. Cable shipped him off to boarding school when he was 14. During the summers, the kid, spent, the kid was sent to sailing camp for six weeks and a dude ranch for six more, anything to keep him away from home. Bruce knew of nothing his father enjoyed collecting other than a string of miserable women. <laughs> Mr. Cable played golf and tennis and travel, but never with Bruce and his sister, always with the latest girlfriend. So where'd the books come from? How long he'd been collecting them? Were there old invoices lying around, written proof of their existence? Would the executor of his father's estate be required to lump them in with the other assets and give them, along with the bulk of the estate, to Emory University? Leaving the bulk of the estate to Emory was something else that irked Bruce. His father had talked about it occasionally, without giving too many details. Mr. Cable was of the lofty opinion that his money should be invested in education and not left for his children to squander. On several occasions, Bruce had been tempted to remind his father that he'd spent his entire life pissing away money earned by someone else, but squabbling over such matters would not benefit Bruce. At that moment, he really wanted those books. He decided to keep 18 of the best and leave the rest behind. That's how Bruce Cable became a book dealer. Let's talk a moment about the, uh, the process because I'm always fascinated by uh, how you do what you do, when you do it, where you do it. Um, obviously, you work far too slow because you, have, you, you haven't published many books. Uh, what's your process? Oh, wow. Uh, it, maybe this is, uh, you know, there's a funny scene. You need to read that scene where those guys are in there and they see the poetry in the vault. <laughs> That's, that's so funny. You got to read that. I marked that. This, this is my copy. You know, that, you know, it, that tells you how popular his books are. He takes mine. You know? I had, I had to borrow a copy a while ago, and I, I grabbed, and, and and Ron said, "Here, take mine." So the the first chapter is, the the heist, of the Fitzgerald manuscripts from the Firestone Library at Princeton, and it gets off to a bang with these five. Uh, these four thieves, are in the library after midnight. And they're trying to, uh, they're, they're cutting, sawing, drilling into the vault, trying to get the books. And they finally break into one of the uh, storage vaults and they see a pile of papers. And they, they know that the five Fitzgerald manuscripts are in there, okay, along with a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> Careful, Jerry said to Mark as Mark opened the box and gently lifted a thin, hardback volume. Mark read slowly. The collected poems of Dolph McKenzie. 
just what I always wanted. <laughs> Who the hell? And this is, this is the line that, that Ron marked. Don't know, but we ain't here for poetry. <laughs> my, my, I was reading that, and, uh, and I just started laughing out loud. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just that, that was that was great. that was just a great moment. I, as a poet, you know, you just you just you just can't. Yeah, but uh, you know that brings up one thing that I, I think is interesting: uh, how people, you know, we we love to read fiction, and one one thing I, I really enjoyed in this book was. You know, learning, you know, learning about that world, of, you know, that kind of underground world, but also how you would break into a vault like this yeah. and steal the books. <laughs> uh, but, but, I mean, what's interesting to me very often in fiction is how people read fiction to learn about real things. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, when I wrote Serena, you know, most of that is about the you know, building of the Smoky Mountains Park. And, and, and I, you know, I was interested in it, you know, learning about that. Uh, and, and, and to me, that's always interesting. It's almost like I think sometimes you're giving history a human face. I love uh, Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel and, uh, you know, about Cromwell. And, and, and I think that's kind of an interesting – you would think that, that sounds like a paradox, but it's not. But I have people all the time say, yeah, I learned about this, uh, this section of the law. I learned about this legal issue or, uh, or I learned what to do in my lawsuit by reading your books. And I said, you better be careful, okay, because <laughs> – don't ever assume anything you read in one of my books is accurate, okay? Because I'm not known for my accuracy. And, and I, you know, I, I fake the, the heist uh, because I don't know how to break in vaults and steal books, Ron. I mean, come on. Well, you, 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 you missed your career calling, maybe. Uh. <laughs> All right, back to my question. What? Lawyer? You, what? You're on the wrong side of the law here as a lawyer. What time, what, what time of the day do you write? And where well, do you where do you write? Well, I'm very ritualistic uh, about that. Uh, you know, I, I what I do my day is pretty much programmed uh, where I, I wake up, I go work out for an hour, just to clear my head. Then I come back and I've got a 44 ounce sweet tea. <laughs> well, not not uh, very often unsweet tea now, but um, uh, three or four pencils, a pad, and my computer, and uh, I just. Uh, I go at it, uh, you know, I try not to have any uh, distractions. Actually, I, I like to work in my office because there's nothing, you know, I don't want a beautiful view. Uh, you know, I don't want anything that's going to distract me. And, uh, Is this I, office I, at, at, at the college or at yeah, home? Yeah, or, uh, you know, at home I, I work in a place where I don't look out at anything. Um, and uh, so, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, to, to me, so much of, what what makes a writer is the days that you'd rather stick pencils in your eyes than sit down and write. I mean, and uh, I mean, and is that true for you? I mean, don't you feel like, or maybe not, but I mean, something. You know, there's some days, but if if I sit down, as much you know, after a few minutes, even I wait it out and it comes. You yeah, I always uh, I'm pretty much the same. Early in the morning, uh, I don't have sweet tea. I have very strong coffee. Uh, same same type of coffee, same coffee mug, and I'm, I'm again very ritualistic. Uh, my office is dark. Uh, there's a window I can't see much. There's no phone, fax, or internet in the office. I work on a computer, uh, and that's just the way I've done it for all these years. And uh, but yeah, there, I mean, there's some days when you 
there's some days when the words just aren't coming, and and those days are rare. Uh, obviously, you sign contracts with your publisher that, that do not include deadlines. Uh, <laughs> you you admit that? You admit that? Uh, I, yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, I've never had you know, I, and I do that on purpose. I don't want a deadline. I really. You're a don't. typical writer, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I I don't have deadlines, but I'm. I, uh, they're all self-imposed. I'll tell, I'll tell Doubleday in January. Uh, yeah, I got a book this year. I got a book this year. So that they know what the schedule is going to be and the book will come out in October if I can get it written by July the 1st. Um, so I, I think you have to, you have to be pretty disciplined about it. You have to be, uh, I think rituals are good. Uh, I tell, you know, I tell people all the time, you, you, you got to do it every day. Uh, it, it's difficult to to produce anything if you're not working on it every day. Uh, we've got a few minutes uh, for questions. You want to take some questions, Ron? Yeah. All right. Who's got a question? Right over here. Wait, the question is, do we have pets? Mine died. I have two dogs. <laughs> in. And I didn't kill him. I mean, I mean, it's not like I was... It's not like I was reading to them and they killed over. But, but I, I mean... But I, I actually, that, I mean, one of my favorite ways to write, particularly in the winter, is, uh, where, you know, my dogs died about six months ago, but um, I, I love to have my dogs by the fire while I was writing because, you know, a dog's not going to bother you. Uh, you know, they're just lying there. But, but, but it, was just, it was comforting to have them there, and that was part of my ritual. Uh, so, yeah, do you have so, pets? So you, don't have, you have no, no, no dogs now? No. No pets? No, no. I mean, I'll probably get, get another one. Yeah. But, uh, my wife loves dogs. Uh, I like them. Uh, <laughs> uh, at one point a few years ago, we had five dogs in the house and uh, all different kinds of dogs. One, of, uh, one was a runaway, and we took it in and, um, and took care of it for a long time. We now have one dog, uh, a mutt, that was living down the road. We live out in the country. He was not being very well taken care of, and so he moved in with us. And, uh, and that was a good move on his part. Uh, my wife really pampers her pets. We have a couple of uh, stray cats that live on the porch, and she feeds them, and she's got six horses. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff on the farm, all wild animals. So, yeah, uh, I, I do love my dog, yeah. I, I, I do. Yes, ma'am. The question is, Ron says he starts with an image. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, uh, <laughs> but uh, what, well, I start with a plot. You know, I, I, I start with an idea that I am always looking for ideas, um, stories about lawyers, uh, cases, lawsuits, uh, litigation, law firms blowing up, courts, uh, uh, cases uh, on appeal, decisions, trends in the law. Uh, my, the book I'm almost done with now that'll come in October is about uh, student debt. That's the issue is student debt, especially how it, it relates to uh, for-profit law schools. And that's, that's was a lot of fun to, re, uh, to write about. Um, I'm always looking for maybe, uh, an issue, uh, that I care about. Uh, I'm always frustrated, continually frustrated by, um, problems we have with our legal system that could easily be fixed if we just do it, okay? And one, one book is going to be about mass incarceration. I've, I've touched on it before. I want to do a novel there. Um, but I, I'm always... Thank you. 
Uh, I'm just always looking for, for, for uh, a story that I can take and fictionalize. We steal everything. I mean, writers are just thieves, okay? You know, I, I, but I watch the news, and when I finally put a plot together, you know, mentally with um, uh, a, a compelling opening, you know, pop, maybe a clever ending, and I can work out the middle part, which is only 400 pages, you know. Um, once I get that worked out, I'll get pretty serious. But my, mine starts with the plot. Uh, so, some writers say they start with characters. Uh, Ron starts with an image. Would you just dis- explain that to us? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, well, for instance, with Serena, uh, you know, that, this novel, it's, all I had was a, a woman on horseback. I had this image. And obviously on some level, I mean, I've been reading, you know, I knew the story of the National Park, I, and, and, and that was actually at a time I wrote the novel when, as, as right now, uh, you know, there was a real push to try to open up the parks for timbering and minerals, which is happening right now. And I'm actually writing about that again right now because of this. But, um, yeah, I think that's hovering in the background, but I have to find some uh, a character or an image that leads me into it, into the story. So, yeah. Yes, sir. My favorite books of, of, of my books? Uh, yeah, I mean, some I like better than others. You have to love them to finish them. Um, you have to love them to start them. I mean, I have to be really uh, captivated by the story to get it started. I mean, I have, a lot, I have a lot of ideas. Most of them don't work. Over time, they go away. They just, you know, they, they start off brilliant, and they never get written. But I'm not going to invest a lot of time writing something if, if I don't know it's going to work up front. Uh, a Time to Kill, the manuscript was 1,000 pages long. It was a mess uh, I, because I didn't know what I was doing. No one had taught me to write, Ron. Um, <laughs> well, the editor, when he, got, when he got a hold of it, he cut a third of it out. And that was a year of my life. And I said, I'm not doing this again. I'm not, I'm too, I'm not lazy, but I'm not doing that again, it just you know, wasting time. So I'm, I'm very careful about the outline. I'll, I'll always be partial to um, – a Time to Kill because it was the first book and it was the only book I have ever written without a deadline because I didn't know if I was going to finish it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was serious about the story. I worked on it, on it daily for almost three years. Um, and I think because of that, it has a lot of uh, texture to it, a lot of local color, a lot of the characters are deeper and all that. Um, and so people, people have said, why don't you do that again? And I'm not sure I can. You know, I did that 30 years ago. And, uh, and I'm not sure I want to. Um, I, I, I've never gone back to read A Time to Kill. I, I've never gone back to read any of my books except for uh, I had to read Ford County for the audio tape. And I'll never do that again. Okay, that was that. <laughs> been stuck in a sound room for four days and, you know, just reading. And uh, I got so tired of that book. But by the time, by the time I finished a novel... Uh, I turn in the second or third draft, and then it goes through the copy editing, and this is on a real tight schedule every year because that's just the way we do things. Uh, the book's going to come out in October, so they got to get it to the press. And, you know, so we, we have a timeline, but there's not a whole lot of uh, extra time to, 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 to mess with. So we do, we do the revisions and editing and all that. And so within about, you know, three, a three-month period, I've read that book and redone it, you know, six times. I'm really sick of it, okay? And um, I don't want to read it again. I just I don't go back and read them. I like a painted house because it's a um, sort of a childhood memoir. I adore skipping Christmas 
because every November I want to skip Christmas. I dream of doing it every year. I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, I, I waited 20 years for a baseball story. Uh, and, and, and along the way, I had two football novels, and I kept waiting for the baseball story. And finally got it and really enjoyed researching Calico Joe and putting that together. Um, yeah, around my house, we still refer to life as BF and AF, before the firm and after the firm. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, so the firm will always be uh, a special book. Yes, ma'am, back there. What's it like to hand over my darling books to, uh, to those, those people in Hollywood? Um, well, Stephen King told me a long time ago, uh, he said, look, if you're going to deal with Hollywood, here, here are the rules, okay? Uh, get all your money up front, um, <laughs> kiss it goodbye, and expect it to be something different. And if you don't like that, don't deal with them. And there are very few writers who are going to say no to Hollywood. Um, I've been lucky. I've had nine books adapted. Eight were fun to watch. So you're thinking, which one do you look like? <laughs> the Chamber was a mess from day one. I read the screenplay, and I said, you guys, are, you've blown the whole thing. Don't make this movie with this screenplay. Uh, they did anyway. It was a train wreck. Nobody went to see it. I was thrilled nobody went to see it. Uh, but it was a bad movie. So, you know, eight out of nine is not, not. Have you, have you been tempted, yeah. Ron? No, I've got two. Yeah, you got, you got two, right? You got yeah, two. Uh, yeah, not, Serena was terrible. I mean, but, I mean, I think... You, you, you take the money. You don't have to. And uh, so, and what it did for me, and I, obviously I, th I think it does, it brought in readers that I would never have gotten. Yeah. So, the, I mean, that's great. And uh, uh, there's a, the, the movie of A World Made Straight, which was an indie, is a very good movie. Uh, you know, and uh, so I was very happy with it. But, uh, yeah, Serena just turned into... This just yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of the novel of a strong woman—they turned her into somebody who wasn't that at all. Yeah. So, uh, do you have anything under contract now? I've got a couple of options. Options. You know, that's everybody has options. Oh, they'll option everything. Yeah, I've got uh, uh, three or four under contract. They're in um, like production, which means nothing is happening. Probably when you. When, <laughs> When you say, oh, your, your work's in production, that yeah. means you're screwed. It's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> nothing will be filmed this year, not even close. Uh, I can't see anything being filmed next year. Nowadays, it's all the, or TV's all the rage, so we're trying to uh, talk to them. And that's where all the talent is. Uh, Hollywood now, the, stu the studio system is so, uh, so broken. They, they, they make so few smart uh, adult dramas. You look at what's on the, you know, you can't go to the movies anymore unless you want to see Spider-Man 5 or something like that. And uh, they just don't make that. They're rare. When you get a really good, you know, drama, they're, 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 they don't make them. Yes, sir, back there. The question is uh, to talk about, ask to talk about uh, the, uh, the, the part that's not a whole lot of fun, the rewriting and the editing and the tedious part of after you finished your book, you're not really finished with it. You got to keep working. You want to address that, Ron? Well, for me, that's the part I enjoy the most. <laughs> no, really. I mean, the first draft is what I hate. I really do. And, you know, and every writer does it different, but... We are not going to collaborate on anything. All right, all right. <laughs> well, we could. I mean, you, you know, you take care of that first part, and then I'll, I'll come in and tinker. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I just hate that opening. And what I do with an opening draft is I just write as fast as I can, and, and, and it's kind of like a potter. All I want to do is get a big, ugly gob of clay to play with, and, and that's kind of... But, but the part I take 
the most pleasure in, and maybe this is you know because um, you know I'm also a poet, is when I really get to play with the sentences and the rhythms, and and that's the fun part for me. That's the part I enjoy most. That's the part I hate. Uh, <laughs> my first drafts are pretty good uh, because um, because I'll when I sit down each morning, I go back and read what I wrote the day before. And a good day for me is 1,000 words. A really good day is 2,000. I don't like to do 2,000. 2,000 is too fast. One thing I learned a long time ago, I realized, you talk about how you play around with words and play around with sentences, and, and you write these beautiful sentences. You know, that critics, they, they quote your sentences and their review, reviews because they're, it, they're so beautiful. Um, I might be able to do that. Uh, I just don't have the patience for it. I, I learned long time ago, that I, ju- I have a hard time working slow. And, and I do my first drafts pretty fast, but I'm also continually editing and, 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 and trying to get that thing as good as I can. I, I don't want to go back through 500 pages and redo it. Um, you call it tinkering? I, I just don't want to tinker. I want to get it done. So, yeah, There was another gentleman back here. Yes, sir. The question is, do I employ research assistants to, um, to help out with... Um, so, you know, so, yeah, yes. Um, the, the, I do two types of research. I, the fun part I do myself. Uh, like when I wrote Playing for Pizza and, and The Broker, I, I spent a lot of time in Italy, you know, uh, trying local foods and wines. It was really <laughs> all tax deductible because it's work, okay? Um, the, the really hard research is the legal stuff, and I'll, I'll hire a law student to do it. And uh, they give me these beautiful memos, and I change very little, and plug them in the novels, and you know people think I'm a genius because. Uh... Yes, ma'am. Does your wife still proofread? Does my wife still proofread? Uh, uh, she does. She reads. Uh, it's 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 more than proofreading. It's um. It's uh, proving the the story idea before I start. Where I'm always kicking around ideas for books, and uh, she doesn't like most of them. Uh, and if I catch myself having to convince her, then the book's probably in trouble. I, I, I refine it to a point to where I, I call it the pitch. When I give the pitch for the story, it better be fairly quick, and it better be well thought out. And, you know, if, if you're doing too much explaining, you know, you're probably drowning. And she's, she's good at shooting those down. And then, um, yeah, she, she reads the, the, the first draft, and she's not really an editor, but she has a real good sense of story and timing and pacing, and she's really good at, at pointing out the one thing I cannot abide. I cannot tolerate when she says, this book is dragging right here. I just, and that drives me nuts, and I'll, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. I'll make sure it gets fixed. I just can't stand the fact that you're not turning pages real fast, okay? I want you to turn pages. <laughs> Who reads your stuff, Ron? Well, uh, my, my wife's too nice to me. I mean, she, she I, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think she kind of views herself more as a cheerleader, uh, plus the fact that I'm so damn slow. <laughs> you know, I don't I, want to read that sentence again, you know. Uh, but, uh, but, it, but, but my brother's a good reader. Uh, because he knows what I'm trying to do as well as what I'm, you know, what's on the page. But uh, it's funny when you're talking about research. Yeah, he goes to Italy. I go to my uncle's barn, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that tells you something about our status in the literary world. Uh, but, 
but there is a, a funny, funny thing that happened uh, with, you know, I, because I like to talk to people who do these things. And uh, my, my uncle was a tobacco farmer. And I, when I wrote a, my third novel, I, I have several scenes where you really get into the, you know, the deep into that, which is, I mean, that's a real art to grow tobacco. I mean, it's a hard crop. You don't, you can't do that crop without really knowing what you're doing. But uh, I was talking to my aunt who, you know, who had done this all year. And we were talking about hanging tobacco, which is a nasty job. And, uh, you know, we were talking about it, And then she kind of looked up at it and said, a lot easier to write about. <laughs> so your wife does not read your stuff. No, she I reads. Mean, I mean, yeah, she'll I mean, read I mean, initially. Yeah. yeah, she'll read and and, and you yeah, know she might point out you know uh, spelling errors. Or, you know, but she's she's uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting. She's not nice to me in so many other areas of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a joke. Yeah. That's a, that's because we work at home. We spend yeah. too much time at the, around the house. Uh, I tell I tell aspiring writers, you, you got to find somebody who, who loves you and who knows what you're trying to say uh, and, and who wants you to succeed, uh, but will also be brutally honest. If it's a spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, a friend, a brother, a teacher, a mentor, someone who who knows you and loves you, and they and, and they they want you to succeed, and they can be brutally honest, and you can take their criticism. I got lucky because it was Renee from day one. Um, this goes back to 1985. Uh, I'd written the first chapter of A Time to Kill, and she's an English major, and she, she reads a lot of books. And late one night, uh, it was about bedtime, and I said, um, hey, I got something I want you to read. And she said, what is it? And I said, it's uh, a book I'm writing. She, didn't, she knew nothing about it. And um, I said, I'd like for you to read it. She said, sure. I was so nervous, I gave it to her as a legal pad, and I went out, I left the house and went and walked around the block, you know, just to get out of the house. When I came back, um, I said, okay, did you like it? And she said, uh, I like it. I'd like to read some more. I said, okay, I'll go write some more. Said, that's, all, that's all I got, okay? Uh, and we started this chapter by chapter thing with a time to kill. There were there were two or three times when I put the book down for, you know, two or three weeks, didn't want to pick it back up. I used to walk into bookstores and look at all the new arrivals from, you know, the big publishers and a wall covered with beautiful books. And I would think, you know, who wants to hear from me? You know, it's, it, was, it was very discouraging. And in those crucial moments, she said, get busy, get busy, get busy. I want to read some more. Yes, ma'am. Which one of my characters would I like to spend an afternoon with? Uh, Got to be Julia Roberts. Uh. <laughs> yes, sir. Books that shape my life. You take it first, Ron. You read more than I do. Uh, I don't know about that, but... Uh... Yeah, I actually the book that made me want to be a writer and is when I was 15 I, there was this list in the library of the 100 great novels and uh and and one of them was Crime and Punishment and and I thought wow that sounds interesting you know <laughs> Crime and Punishment and you know and I but I was always kind of a precocious reader uh, and and I started reading that book while I was making a D in biology uh, on the back row. 
and uh, there's a scene, you know, if you know the book, pretty early on, about 40 pages in, Raskolnikov kills the pawnbroker. You know, I'm not giving anything away here. But um, <laughs> that scene, I mean, I didn't obviously get, on, you know, so many levels I wasn't getting in that book, you know, obviously. But that scene, for the first time in my life, it wasn't so much that I'd entered a book, but a book had entered me. And to know that just splotches of ink on a page could do that. And, I, you know, I couldn't think, I mean, and I still find that wondrous. That, you know, when you read a book, any of our books, um, we're just giving you splotches of ink on, on one level. I mean, it, to me, it's uh, a collaboration. Uh, in a way, almost an act of communion. And so, uh, yeah, that was the book that did it for me. How old were you? I was 15, yeah. 15, 15. okay, yeah. you said that. Uh, for me, uh, when I was, well, I was 16, I was 17, and growing up in Mississippi, there's a state law that requires every high school English teacher to, to teach Faulkner. <laughs> they cram it down your throats, and every, uh, every teacher thinks that he or she is an expert on Faulkner because he's one of us. And so we, we were loaded down with Faulkner. I mean, there was a lot, was a lot of it. And it was, it, we, we couldn't penetrate it, you know. The Sound of Fury for 16-year-old kids, are you kidding me? Um, but I, I had a senior English teacher who had, who, had, who had mercy on us, and she let us, she told us to read other writers. And she uh, started, uh, she assigned a book called Tortilla Flat by John Steinbeck. And I loved the book. I mean, I, I, and, I, and I, was a, I was a jock. Uh, I wasn't a student. So I waited till class was over, and, and I sneaked around, and I said, um, I love this book. What else has he written? She said, she said, try this, Cannery Row of Mice and Men. Here we go down the hole. And she, say, she saved the best for last. And when I read uh, The Grapes of Wrath as a senior in high school, I thought this is, you know, this is powerful stuff. And I, I, I never thought about writing but I, back then, but I remember thinking, I wish I could write this clearly as John Steinbeck. So that book had an impact. Uh, years later, when I started writing A Time to Kill, uh, I started reading everything on the bestseller list. And uh, I would read a book and I would, you know, popular fiction. So I, I would read a book and I would say, you know, I can, I'm better than that. <laughs> I would, I'd read another book and I would say, you know, I'm never going to be that good. But there's room on that list. For, I'm, so I fit somewhere in there. Uh, so I read a lot of bad books that inspired me to keep writing. Um, one of my favorite all-time books, I've probably read it five times, is uh, a book by John Le Carre, Little Drummer Girl. He published it in 1980, the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and it's just, to me, it's brilliant. And I, I always say I wish I could write as smart as he can. So those are, those are some of the books. And I think that kind of something that I think is interesting because I grew up in North Carolina, you grew up in Mississippi. You know, some, you know people talk about why, you know, why so many writers come from this region and, you know, all sorts of, but I think, for me, part of it, and, and the other book that had a huge impact on me was Look Homeward Angel. But I think if you, you, know, you grow up in Mississippi and you, you know Welty lived here or lives here, you know Faulkner lives here, lived here, you know Thomas Wolfe lived 50 miles from where you grow, you're, you're living, and, and, and you just realize you can do this. This is something, you know, that, uh, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, it's just the idea that it's a possibility. And, and I think that's the same with music. Same kind of thing that it's a possible. You realize this is a, something maybe I can do. Yeah, and there's there's such there's so many great stories from the South because 
because there's been such great suffering. Any, 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 the, the, the history is so tortured. And anytime you have uh, a lot of conflict and a lot of suffering and a lot of uh, injustice and a lot of um, the things that our region has endured, you're naturally going to have a lot of great stories. I wrote a book called The Innocent Man, which is a nonfiction account of a wrongful conviction. And I got involved in, in innocence work, and I've met a bunch of these exonerees, guys who spent 15, 20, 30 years for somebody else's crime after they get out. And I would love to write every one of their books because every story is, is fantastic because, because of the suffering. The injustice, the things you can't believe, you know, I, I, can't, I can't write it anymore of those, but uh, that's what, that's where we get our stuff from. Yeah, and I think that's, there's a great quote, it's been attributed to Orson Welles and Graham Greene, uh, but uh, one of the characters, I think it's in uh, uh, The Third Man, uh, where a character says, uh, the Swiss have had 200 years of peace and prosperity and all they've given us is the cuckoo clock. <laughs> And, you know, then you look at, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is not true. Actually, there's a, one of my favorite writers is a Swiss writer named Ramu, uh, who's a wonderful writer and writes about the mountain area. But, but you get the drift. I mean, and the point was that turmoil art very often comes out of turmoil. Yeah. And contradiction. All right, one more question. Yes, sir. Marlon? The question is, uh, when, I, when I start writing a book, do I know how it's going to end? Um, the answer is yes. And, I, and, and I, I don't want you to know. Halfway through, I don't want you to know how it's going to end. Uh, I want the ending to be something uh, usually satisfactory, but not always. Uh, there have been some really uh, rough endings, but intentionally. Um, John Irving is one of my favorite writers. He uh, allegedly said that he writes the last sentence before he writes the first. Uh, I'm not that smart, uh, but I know the last scene before I write the first one. And you have no clue, right? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just out there wandering around. You know? No, you're seeing images, okay? That's what, you're seeing visions, you're hallucinating. I see dead people. <laughs> All right, we're out of time. We've been doing this for an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, thank you, Ron Rash. Thank all y'all for coming. I'll see you down the road. Thanks to my guest, Ron Rash, and to the staff here at Malaprops, the volunteers, and all the loyal customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.